probably there is no more important word in this entire passage of Scripture than what you find there in verse 11. So I draw your attention to verse 11. You see the word, those who have been trained. Uh, that Greek word there, trained, is absolutely imperative for us to understand because it communicates to us the nature of the discipline. Uh, you may have been looking at this text thinking, we're going to talk about being chastised by the Lord, uh, corrected, disciplined in the terms of punishment. Well, certainly the proverb that is cited here has that capacity. But in the context in which we find it here in Hebrews, it is the language of training. So what is God training us for and what is God training us with? I mean, that's really what we're looking at here. And so remember the context if you would, chapter 11, big parentheses in the book of Hebrews, right? It's a big parenthetical chapter because, go back to chapter 10, if you would, sort of what we're finding now in, in, in chapter 12 resumes the idea. So chapter 12 is very much resumptive of what we found in chapter 10. Chapter 11 was illustrating a very important point about the nature of faith and endurance But look with me at chapter 10 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 32. It says, Remember the former days, and after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. See the link there of suffering? It says, Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, then he begins to speak about what is promised and how that is fulfilled eschatologically through what God is going to do. And then he gives example after example after example of what it looks like in chapter 11 to live under the promise. But now he resumes the concept of what it means to suffer, chapter 10. And when he begins to talk about that, he gives us several things in connection with that suffering. Number one, he gives us the example or what we could even call what is the pattern of this suffering. In one sense, what you're finding is in verse 3, you almost have sort of a summary of what comes afterwards and goes all the way down to verse 11. And it is with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, for consider him. And why are we to consider him? Well, because we were just told in verse 2 to fix our eyes on Jesus, remember? And then he illustrates that by how do we do this? Well, this is how you do it. You consider, that's just another way of saying fix your eyes. Look unto him. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, what is the synonymous parallel going on there? Well, it's back to chapter 10, verse 32 and following. 
that just as Jesus suffered hostility, he endured hostility by sinners against himself, in the same way this church had experienced the same hostility, they had endured the same hostility by sinners by by way of persecution against themselves. So what the author is saying is, your pattern for suffering is Christ. In the same way that you are having your you're having your property plundered. They are seizing your possessions in that same way that you are suffering reproaches. What does he say there in chapter 10? You were made a spectacle. That Greek word literally means brought up on stage like in the Colosseums and paraded around like a fool. That's the type of hostility that you could expect from a culture that is hell-bent on being anti-Christ and anti-Christian. And what is he saying here? That's exactly the pattern that you can expect if you're following Christ. Because Jesus himself endured the same type of hostility against himself. And this pattern is given to us so that we would not lose heart. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And 1 Peter, actually the epistles of Peter are commonly known as the uh, of, of epistles of suffering. And so they're... Ex- Extremely congruent with what we're looking at here in Hebrews. Look at First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. You ever seen those plaques on maybe you walk into somebody's home, you might find the poem Footsteps, right? When you're supposed to follow the example of Christ and you see the footsteps on the beach, right? Um, well, this is Peter's version of footsteps. Okay? <laughs> because he's speaking about what it means to suffer. Look at verse 20. What credit is it there, uh, is there if when you sin, it says when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience. In other words, who cares if you suffer for your sin? That's not the type of sanctifying suffering that Hebrews is talking about or Peter is talking about. He says, but if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Jesus Christ is the he is the ultimate example of what it means to to patiently endure right look at verse 21 he says for you have been called for this purpose wow now i'm going to find that in a lot of bible promise books <laughs> you have been called for this suffering purpose He says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, here it is, an example for you to follow in his steps, in his footsteps. And what does his suffering look like? He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While he was suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself To him who judges righteously. That's a crucial participial phrase. He does this by virtue of his entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. What is he saying is that when persecution for Christ came, Jesus Christ did not join in the underhanded tactics of the world. So, two things we learn from the example of Christ. Number one, his example prepares us for hostility. In other words... 
don't expect that in this world that is essentially characterized by evil, Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, the present evil age, don't expect that in this present evil age you will not have hostility. Oh, you will. There will be hostility all around. It will come from the flesh, the devil, the world. It will come from the hands of your persecutors. It will come from the hands of your own family, as Jesus said. Those of your own household will be your enemies. And therefore, we have to be ready for the hostility that we face. The reason why Jesus Christ faced such so much hostility is because, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, they failed to regard him as the king of glory because, brothers and sisters, we are dealing with blind people all around us. They are blind to who Jesus is. They cannot help it. They can't help their opposition to Christ because they are blind to who he is. They don't know that he is the Lord of glory or they would never have crucified him. But it also prepares us for holiness, not just for the hostility, but for holiness. You see, Peter tells us he committed no sin. Even when he faced all of this hostility by sinners against himself, he did not join in their tactics. Same thing for us, brothers and sisters. When we are attacked, when we are maligned, when we are persecuted for righteousness sake, we do not join in their underhanded ways. We do not imitate their carnal tactics. We do not return evil for evil. We do not respond with violence or ridicule or slander or any other carnal thing. We are to be lamb-like in persecution. We are to turn the other cheek. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice of God as a fragrant aroma. He gave us an example so that we would follow, so that we would be imitators of him. I really encourage you, do a study in your Bible of the principle of imitation and find how many places the Bible tells you to imitate somebody and identify who are you imitating and why you're imitating them. I've done the study. There are dozens of verses on this principle of imitate, 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 imitate. Of course, the reason why he's doing this, as he says here back in Hebrews chapter 3, is so that, that's the purpose, you will not grow weary and lose heart. Very easy to lose weary under persecution. Um, very easy to lose heart. Very easy to grow weary, rather, to lose heart when you are literally being confronted with tangible examples of hostility. We're not talking about knowing the world is hostile. We're talking about seeing the hostility right in front of your eyes. That's very serious. We're going to have a guest speaker come to our church and speak to us about Islam and some of the stories that he shares with me about what's going on in the, in the Muslim world is just staggering, breathtaking. I can't relate to it. I must be, I must be honest with you. It's difficult for me to comprehend what it feels like to be in an underground church in Yemen with all the doors closed, all the blinds down, and you soundproof the room and you yell the top of your lungs, you scream into your pillow, praises to God because you cannot do it publicly. And then to see that one of his friends recently was burned to death for converting to Christ. 
It's difficult for us to understand the precious nature of this text, but it is not for many, many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions around the world that persecution is a daily reality. Daily. Our brother Joseph Urban in Mexico experiences this all the time. He has people converting from Catholicism to Christianity and going to his Reformed church and being slapped around by their parents. There's a young lady. That's exactly what happened. They tore her Bible to pieces for leaving the Catholic church and was beaten by her father. I mean, this is a reality that's going around all over the world. We can stay on this, but I want to also just dive into this principle of discipleship. So we have the pattern of discipline, but we also have well, really the principle of discipline, rather not discipleship, but of discipline. The principle of discipline is very easy. It is familial. It is paternal. It deals with the family metaphor that we find here in Hebrews. Read along with me. Look at verse 4. It says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. We'll come back to that. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, very crucial there, the word as sons, as we'll see. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son who he receives. And I think a lot of, for a lot of Christians, that passage is really not reality. I think for a lot of Christians, we do not associate the concept of joy when it comes to a passage like this out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. That's where he's quoting this from. And he's saying, look, if you are genuinely loved of the Father, you are genuinely disciplined of the Father. Right? Because, what's he going to go on to say? Well, he's going to go on to say in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. In other words, Scripture is brutally honest that when you are undergoing the discipline of the Lord, it doesn't feel good sometimes. Right? What does it feel like? The word he uses here, lupe, pain. That's what it could feel like. Pain, sorrow, hurt, ache. That's what it may feel like. And it may feel like that in corrective discipline when you've undergone the discipline, let's say, of the church, let's say for the sake of because there's a sin issue and discipline has had to come in and you have been a, you have been a, a person who has received, let's say, corrective church discipline. There's that aspect. But in this passage, what he's really focused on is positive discipline. It is formative discipline. It is it is the type of discipline that God does in order to shape you, positively speaking, and to build your character. Even corrective discipline, of course, has that effect. Let me read to you some psalms. Now, you can flip there if you'd like with me, but I just want to give you the theology of the psalms in particular because the psalmist was tuned in so much to this idea of the blessedness of heavenly discipline. Wow. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. I would say, look at that parallel, right? Blessed is the man whom you chasten. And then the parallel idea is whom you teach out of your law. Wow. In discipline, there is instruction. That's what God is trying to do. What is... What does David say in Psalm 119, verse 67? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. 
And as a shepherd, he understood the depths of this, right? There's a straying sheep. What does a shepherd do? He goes get that sheep, breaks its leg in order so it can learn its lesson, straps it onto his back and takes it with him everywhere. And that's what God does to us when we stray, when we need corrective discipline. He afflicts us so that we do not go astray. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. How about this one? Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now that is very akin to what we're finding here in Hebrews. The Lord, what's it say? Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines every son that he receives he scourges now also notice the redemptive benefits of god's discipline first corinthians chapter 11 verse 32 the apostle paul not mincing any words as to the as to the benefits of the discipline of the lord it says but when we are judged i.e by the lord We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Beautiful. But again, this discipline has a familial metaphor, right? What's he saying there? Look at verse 7. Follow down with the the, the metaphor, what's going on here. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. That's that's emphasized twice now. Look at verse uh, 5. He he says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, verse 7, God deals with you as sons or as with sons. And then here's the metaphor. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In other words, for uh, from the biblical worldview and even from a and just from common grace, right? Just from the general operation of a society, What father is there that doesn't discipline their son or their daughter, right? How much do you have to hate your children not to discipline them? I don't know about you, but I remember being in high school. And I remember the kids whose parents were just as much of a party animal as they were. We made fun of them and we would say things like, your parents don't even care about you. I mean, they party with you for crying out loud. And I remember my peers becoming very, very depressed and upset because that was true and they knew it and they became downcast because it was a shame, right? Because they had no discipline in their life. They didn't care if they skipped school. They didn't care if they did their homework. They didn't care if they graduated. They they knew they were not loved because of the absence of discipline. Same thing with us today. If we truly love our children, we will discipline them as cute as they are. We will inflict corporeal punishment because we love them so much. But, as your little ones could probably tell you, at the time, they don't get it. (laughs) They don't understand why the discipline has to come. They don't understand how they're supposed to look at the discipline in a good light. That didn't feel too good. How am I supposed to interpret that from a heavenly perspective? (laughs) And of course, what they lack is exactly that understanding they have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to them as sons precisely because god is our father he is concerned to discipline us you know this is giving us the purpose now 
Right? What is the purpose of all of this discipline? Look, look with me. Just keep reading. Verse 9. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits? And later on, he's going to speak about the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Our souls, the keeper of our souls and live for they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now we're getting to the purpose of discipline. I would say purpose number one, it shows us God's perfect paternal love in our sufferings. So when we interpret our external trials, our sufferings, in the context of Hebrews, specifically our persecution, and when we are tempted to think, where is God? Like, you know, remember the disciples? Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus, in a sense, said, no, 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 no. It's actually the complete opposite of what you're thinking. Not only is God acutely aware of your suffering, but He ordains your suffering precisely because He cares. Something hit me like a ton of bricks as I was studying this, and I wrote it down in order to read it to you. This is what I wrote. We must understand. Somebody criticized my sermons one time and said, you need to stop using the word must so much. (laughs) Because it just, you know, it's... Anyway, I I disagree. Anyway... (laughs) I better disagree because I'm going to keep doing it. We must understand that unlike ourselves, God's chief ambition for our lives is our spiritual progress. That is what God cares. He's not as vain as we are. God cares above everything else that's going on in our lives in the hustle and bustle and in the soccer mom world that we live in. God cares above everything else our spiritual progress need to progress need to mature we need to grow right that beautiful bundle of love of joy you know eden's a little small to spank i was she's gonna get spanked i mean she's already showing signs that that i believe very strongly in in spanking uh and uh, like john piper said once i will go to jail to spank. That's how much I believe in it. And, but anyway, at any rate, <laughs> that little bundle of love that when you discipline, they don't see the good in it when it's happening. They don't get it. But they don't get the fact that a godly parent, godly mom, godly dad, you are much more concerned about their maturity than they are, right? They're just like, I just want to go back to doing what I was doing. But you're looking at the total picture. You're thinking, what happens when you're 16? What happens when you're 18? What happens when you're 20? What happens when you're, when you're starting to come of age and you're ready to move out and you're ready to drive and you're ready to get a car and you're ready to get married and this kid doesn't have the slightest clue what's coming and it's your job, your responsibility to instill this wisdom into them. And they may not perceive it as wisdom when it's happening, But it is for wisdom. God, as our Father, loves us, brothers and sisters, with the purest love imaginable. Look at the motive of His heart, right? Look at, look at verse 9. 
We had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them. Verse 10. They disciplined us. Watch this. For a short time as seemed best to them. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What that's saying is they have a limited capacity. They have a limited standard. They have a subjective standard. They have an individual reason. They fluctuate as to how and when good or bad The quality of their discipline may be up or down. John MacArthur tells an amazing story in his commentary on this. He talks about the fact that one time he disciplined his son and he did it and it was false. That, you know, after correcting, he actually didn't do what was being accused. And he said that he was so overwhelmed by the grief that he cried over it, (laughs) you know, because he corrected his son in error. And God doesn't do that. You ever done that? You ever corrected your child and they didn't deserve it? And then you feel like, yeah, you feel terrible. God doesn't make any mistakes with our discipline. You know how important that is when you're in an underground church in Saudi Arabia and they just discovered where you're meeting and now the government is coming. They know where you live. They know who your family is. They know what, and you know what's about to happen. And you will be tempted in that very hour to wonder what in the world is God doing? Doesn't he know we're trying to run an underground church for the furtherance of his kingdom? It doesn't make any sense to bring this trial and suffering our way. God has the total picture of your life in view. He ordains our trials. It is the sovereign hand of an all-benevolent good God that ordains our trials. And we'll get more to that. But the purpose of discipline shows us several things. God's paternal love, but also this. It shows us our need for perspective. Notice verse 11. It says, All discipline for the moment, that's crucial, seems not to be joyful. Karas, that's what we want. Kare, we want joy, right? We want to be happy. And we think God ordaining and allowing this disciplining source to come into our life is somehow evidence that that joy has been stopped up. That that joy has been blocked from our life. It seems for the moment there's no joy in this. It's just sorrow, right? But that's the crucial word. It is only for the moment. If we understand the doctrine of discipline, really training as we've looked at it, those who have been trained by it. Um, gumnazo is the word where we get gymnasium. Or gymnastics. And how hard do they train? Very hard, right? A gymnast trains very hard. It's grueling. It's agonizing. It's toil. Super hard work. And it goes back to the race metaphor that we looked at at the the beginning of the chapter, right? This athletic metaphor of what God is doing in our lives. But we need this perspective to know, no, no, God is working out all things for our good. It also shows us, therefore, the great gain of suffering. We may think there is nothing at all to gain from the things that we go through, the trials that we go through, when we suffer according to the will of God. We may think, we may think that when hostility is born against us by sinners, as with Jesus, 
We may think that it's for no good reason. We may think there can't be anything good that comes out of this. But of course there is. And I just want to make it very personal. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to take you to just a couple of verses on this, okay? As we kind of bring things to a close. Because we are told very clearly that as God is training us, as we have been trained by His discipline, as God is correcting us, that there is a harvest of righteousness that is yielded for us. In other words, there are benefits here for us to reap. Look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... Does that sound familiar? For the moment, it doesn't seem joyful. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And that word there, various, kind of the same as in James chapter 1, it's uh, variegated. The term literally means multicolored. In other words, what it's saying is there's a whole prism of trials coming your way. Are you ready? There's a whole prism. It's going to be very complex, very complicated, very, very uh, messy. It's going to be very, it's going to be hard for you to untangle it all. And it's coming your way by way of an ordained, perfectly packaged trial just for your life, for your discipline, and ultimately for your good. He says, what for? Whence comes these trials, right? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know how important these words were to, to Peter when he, when he wrote this? We remember who Peter is, right, in the Gospels? We remember what he did. We remember that shortly after Jesus' arrest, there's Peter standing next to a small little fire and it says there's a servant girl there who says, I know you. You are one of his disciples. You were with him. What does Peter do? I don't know the man. He walks away. Somebody else spots him. I know you. Aren't you one of the disciples of the Nazarene? Don't you follow the Nazarene? And again, no, I don't know him until finally Peter's apostasy was so grievous that he actually commenced the cursing that he did not know and was not associated with Jesus Christ. Peter is acutely aware of his frailty. And Peter has been restored by Jesus, by Jesus, once Jesus got him to the place in John chapter 21, where he's finally able to say, you know all things, O God. You know what's in my heart. You know who I am. I am nothing. I'm nobody. And yet Peter is restored. His faith is proven. He was tested through fire. But if you endure, if you persevere, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be complete or perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You want to grow as a Christian? It doesn't just come through the theology book. It doesn't just come through the systematic theology. 
It comes through the perseverance of trials. It comes through enduring hardship. For some people, it means going to the hard places of the world and being ready to be tested by fire. Uh, Peter, again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, really hits it on the head when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. We could not have said it better than that, right? Surprised at what? The fiery ordeal. Oh, it's just, it is, it, our trials, don't, don't you agree sometimes your trials, you just, they just leave you baffled, <laughs> right? Why? <laughs> Why like this, <laughs> right? Like, I wouldn't have designed this trial this way. <laughs> It's so messy and sticky and hurtful and thorny and it is so incredibly painful. I would have never designed it like this. And the Lord is saying, of course, because you don't design anything for yourself. I'll do that for you. But it is, it is a fiery ordeal. It comes upon you for your testing. Do not think something strange is happening to you. Don't you think the people in Hebrews chapter 12 or really in chapter 10 when they're having their property taken from them, don't you think that they could be tempted to think something strange is happening to us? How has this happened? He says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation, with exaltation. This should leave us with great encouragement, brothers and sisters, because as Hebrew says in verse three there, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As a pastor, I'm very familiar with people losing heart. I'm constantly counseling people losing heart. I'm counseling people that are weary. Their faith is about to drop. They're hanging by a thread. And so therefore, when the scriptures tell us, this is how you don't lose heart, we'd be very wise to pay close attention. How do we not lose heart? How do we not become weary? How do we keep up religion, as Jonathan Edwards would say? How do we keep religion fresh in our hearts, as Jude would say? How do we keep the, ourselves in the love of God? Well, we need to understand what, what the purpose of these trials and this discipline is all about. Because the benefits can be seen in the character of uh, of what God is building in us right now, we should take great comfort in the fact that like the cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, you remember that? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, right? They went through discipline. They experienced scourging. They experienced tribulation. Have we forgotten? Some of them were sawn in half. Some of them were put to death by the sword. Some of them went around in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute and afflicted and ill-treated men of whom the world is not worthy. They experienced the disciplining hand of the Lord in their own lives. But here's the trick, guys. They are now our cloud of witness that surrounds us. In other words, they made it. (laughs) They crossed the finish line. They reached their reward. They reached their goal. They got to the finish line. They're done. They're over. They're sitting back eating popcorn and watching us. If you would. They're enjoying the race now. And guess what? That should so inspire us to recognize that 
If they, you know, this is going to sound Armenian, but it's not. If they can do it, so can we. In other words, if we learn, look back at uh, Hebrews 12, verse 11, if we learn to be trained by it, you see that? If we learn to be conditioned by our trials, and if we just for a second would stop murmuring, stop complaining, Stop moping around because you're going through it in the Christian life. If we would just stop moping and start hoping in God, if we start being trained by our adversities, right? What's going to happen? A harvest. A bountiful harvest is going to open up to us. A, a, A harvest of fruit. Carpon. And as a matter of fact, just to get exegetical for a second, This word here is actually at the head of the clause. It's at the head of the sentence. Why? Because he wants to magnify fruit. He doesn't want to magnify pain. He doesn't want to magnify suffering. He doesn't want to magnify discipline. What he wants to magnify to us is fruit. There is fruit at stake for us. And what's that fruit? It is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It is the sharing, as he says in verse 10, so that we may share in His holiness. Have we forgotten what Scripture says about our example? Turn to chapter 2 of Hebrews to remind us where the author has already been. And how, how easily we forget that this is the example. This is the pattern. Basically what it's saying is what it says in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 17, that if we suffer with Him, we will also triumph with Him in glory. That's what Hebrews is telling us. Hebrews 2.10. Hebrews 2.9. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering, see that? Suffering of death. We could say He was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting... See, it doesn't, it may not seem right to us. Remember the crucifixion? It did not seem right to the disciples. Right? I'm going to Jerusalem to be put to death. Never, Lord. Right? I will ne- I will, I will die with you. Right? It didn't seem right, the suffering. But from the divine perspective, it was fitting for him. For whom are all things that is God? The Father, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, to perfect, to bring to final, eschatological, final, heavenly perfection, the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through suffering. Through suffering. This is a glorious, glorious chapter because it is so real, isn't it? It's one of those chapters that it it doesn't allow for any sort of, you know, 
hyper sort of delusional sort of Christianity, everything's going to... How can the wealth and health prosperity people preach this chapter? I don't know. How can they preach any chapter, right? But this chapter, knowing you're going to suffer, knowing Christ is your pattern, but also knowing that afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And if righteousness is the fruit, then it must mean that righteousness is the goal that God has in mind when we suffer. May the Lord give us that perspective. Father, I pray that as we do, so many people here, so many walks represented, and oh God, that as we do suffer, and by Your grace that we would suffer for righteousness' sake and never for our own sin, because that is no credit for us, But that as we suffer, we do not lose the perspective that every trial that comes into our life ordained by your hand for our good is just that. That you are trying to produce character, righteousness, and ultimately to share in your holiness. We pray that you would strengthen us even as... Verse 3 talks about being weary and losing heart. Father, I'm praying right now for spiritual power for those in this room whose faith is hanging by a thread. They're hanging by a thread and they're weak. They feel hopeless and condemned. Father, as long as there is true regeneration there, and if there's not, would you, by your sovereign spirit, produce it? But if there's regeneration there, oh God, would you, in the spirit of Hebrews, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble? Or the other way around, if that's how it goes. But strengthen the weak among us, oh God. Do the miracle of rolling back the clouds so that the sun of righteousness can shine upon their hearts and lives again. Please, Lord, infuse us with this joy. In Jesus' name, amen.